Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Floor is rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Olive Allen. She's a crypto OG. She's been in the crypto space for a long time, the NFT space for a long time. Uh, she's done a previous sort of pre-NFT startup uh, decadent that we'll get into during the show. She's done a ton of drops, both in the traditional art and also in NFTs. Welcome, Olive Allen, to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Olive, uh, tell us, how did you get into NFTs? Oh my God, it's been a very long journey. I've been since uh, its inception, since the space's inception in early 2018. First, I got in in 2017, late 2017, when the ICO bubble was happening, uh, when everybody was so obsessed about tokens, everybody was buying, selling, whatever. I heard about CryptoKitties and I felt like it's kind of cool, fascinating concept. I think I bought one back then. So later on, I kind of dwelled deeper into the space by actually traveling to Asia, funny enough, going to Singapore, Korea, and catching up with some friends of mine from Russia uh, from back in the day that were really, really deep in it and ended up learning more and more. And at one of the conferences, I heard about NFTs. I mean, of course, I called them NFTs back in the day. It was ERC 721 standards for Ethereum smart contracts very twisted um, and I was like okay this is really interesting I have to learn more and understand the concept because I am an artist yes but also I'm fascinated by the gaming world and I was playing Fortnite back in the day and I had a bunch of skins sitting in my wallet and I was like oh like that's what's missing you know it'd be great if the markets are open and you can trade virtual objects and kind of give them that real status and I was like, I'll have to really, really get in. And thanks for mentioning Decadent. That's where I, when I decided to start a startup right there and then. Tell us about Decadent because I don't believe it's around anymore. The, the website sort of goes to a Wix page. But when I looked at what the material around it was, it kind of looked like a very sort of pre-NFT, NFT startup. Not a lot of people do their research and they would know about Decadent. Uh, funny enough, people think I'm, I'm just an artist who just means in their art and whatnot. No, I'm kind of a very obsessive person. And if I'm really interested in something, I really dedicate most of my time to it. And Decadent was indeed uh, the early version of the marketplaces you see today. And it kind of was a major idea that like ultimate exchange for all of the virtual objects and they have different categories on it in-game items art and i think music i was trying to add like film avatars and things like that so it was way before its time i was way too early and when i was i actually moved to silicon valley especially to raise funds for my startup and learn more from why from why combinator and the whole ecosystem um, so I really dedicated myself to it. Yeah, I think the major 
issue was when I started talking to VCs and people, even in Silicon Valley, people like had no idea what NFTs are, what that standard is. And, you know, like, why are you like little girl, like telling us that, like, go away. Like, we don't fun women, like, forget about it. Just go away. And like, it's crypto winter, like nobody's interested. Like, yeah, I mean, the major issue was my timing, I guess. And I realized that I'm better at certain things, you know, that I thought, I mean, and I wanted to dedicate myself to more of a creation, not, I don't know, being a founder, because when you're a startup founder, you're not really, I don't know, creating in a sense, you are, but you are not. Uh, you more of doing a lot of uh, administrative tasks, especially early stage. You like uh, have to have meetings, you have to respond to emails, and that what occupies most of your day. And like you have to build and find people, you kind of interviewing most of the time, and yeah, it's like leaves a little space for actually being creative. And for me, as an artist, it's a bit was was a bit constraining. And <laughs> yeah, I decided to like move back to New York in like 2019 and wrap it up. If you look at your um, sort of chronology of, of your art career and your NFT career, it does seem like when Decadent sort of wrapped up was when your sort of art career kind of took off. Is that the is that, is that kind of the, the chronology of, of, of everything there? I think my career was a little bit taken off in like 17, early 18. I was a painter. I was a traditional painter living in New York and I was in one. Uh, group show downtown New York. It was so pretty critically acclaimed. It was anti-Trump. That was the era. And people wanted to do like solo shows. Um, they offered me, but I felt like, you know, it was all good. Like, okay, figurative painting was trending even back then. Um, early days, it started like taking off. And I was sort of in the right setting for it. But I wanted to be more innovative. I wanted to be I don't know, bigger. I wanted to create something really remarkable. And I always believe tech is the future. And, you know, I have to be off tomorrow in a sense, in my in my own head. But yeah, you're right. When Decadence sort of wrapped up, uh, the very last drop I did under the name of my startup was like the first drop in my art career in a sense too. 13 dreadful and disappointing items. Yeah, that was the one. It was really the very first drop in the history of the NFT space. And what's their name? The twins from Nifty Gateway, they saw that drop and they'd be like, wow, we have to like, you know, do the same thing, you know, for our startup. And so I can really say that a lot of what you know as Nifty Gateway is my early work. This past Art Basel was, was obviously after the pandemic, it was people coming out into real life again and seeing art. And for yourself, you showed with Nagel Draxler Gallery uh, from Cologne, right? And um, you know, there was quite a lot of press focusing on, because people were curious to know what kind of NFT art was being shown at a kind of flagship physical art fair like Art Basel. Could you right. tell us a little bit about your experience with that? And what did you get in the sense of like, what the traditional, again, quote unquote, traditional art world, what do you thinking about this trend, so to speak? What is really traditional art? Like, where is it? What is it? And is NFT art space is really like a space in a sense that can be divided that way? I feel like NFT world is about literally everything about assets. And 
fine art is a tiny, teeny facet. It's just like tiny, teeny category that nobody really kind of separates much right now. So I don't think it's like a standalone sort of um, space in a sense. I feel like, uh, yeah, you're right. There has been a bunch of waves of the artists that explored the movements, I would say, um, that explored technology and that was post-internet, as you guys remember. And right now, yeah, it's crypto art. I think crypto art is more of a movement than anything else. Right. And I feel like maybe the world needs someone like actually a real like art critic or curator to really define it. And so the bigger art world be like, oh yeah, yeah, makes sense. That's movement, right? Like, yeah, okay. That's who the artists are. Okay, that's what they're saying. That's why it's important. I feel like nobody took their time to even do that. I mean, there's a guy art now, but like, did he do that? Not really. I mean, he raised money for his startup and kind of called today in a sense so there is like nobody really like dwelling deep into it all right i feel like it's all wild nfts where people just like try to grab try to sell a little quick you know and it's all over the place it's very chaotic and you know people just want to do the best they can in the short amount of time um that they think they have left to the next bear market that's how it goes in crypto each and every time so I'm really hopeful for the future that somebody actually will take their time, maybe write a book about the movement, about the artists and what they stand for, about like um, the periods in the crypto art history. Um, I have my theories on that, but I think like going back to your question of Art Basel, um, it was great. I mean, Nigel Drexler is a very respected gallery in Germany. They have several and galleries are there like three, four all over the place. And they've been doing it like, they've been representing most of traditional art for 30 years, even longer than that. And the fact that they took chance on NFTs and younger artists from that space tells me a lot that I feel like slowly more traditional establishments are taken notice. And they're just like people who move faster and there's some people who are more cautious, like waiting for kind of guidance and directions. But ultimately, I believe that larger world, traditional art collectors recognize that, hey, it's just like post-internet. This is just like a movement. Then we have to get in and they'd be like, oh my God, who am I going to buy? Who am I going to ask? And like, wow, you know, I don't want to miss out. So it's just a matter of time, really. And traditional world is a bit slow still. I mean, they're innovative, cool, progressive galleries, but as a whole, as a space as a whole, it's a bit slow on progress, as you probably know that. And uh, yeah, our Basel was just the very first teeny step. It has, I mean, a lot of people were curious and they went to uh, the Crypto Kiosk, um, you know, just to see it like, um, I don't know, like little cage exotic animals, you know, at the fair. <laughs> you know, that, that was... Uh, <laughs> That was pretty funny, but also made people realize that maybe, hey, NFT art, crypto art is here to stay. You had a piece uh, with Nagel Draxler Gallery called Post-Death or the Null Address. And obviously that has some terms that are specific to NFTs. And I was wondering, did you have a sense of like what collectors, did collectors like in general, did they understand the terms? Did, Did the gallery have to do a lot of educating i feel creating art for me it's about capturing the moment in time 
and offer my interpretation of it. It's uh, me and the larger cultural context and the world I'm sort of dwelling in. That was a very interesting piece, actually very important to me because I've always been fascinated of that concept that, you know, what's next, what's after us and what's, what happens when I'm gone and with these digital assets. I mean, do they really die or what's the burn mechanism? I've been always trying to look into that and explore more. And one day I came to that realization, like, oh my God, there's just like immortal, the infinite. That's not a way often for an artist to, it's a path for ultimate immortality that a lot of artists really like so keen on capturing or are so fascinated about that's reasons for many to create so yeah when you send an asset any nft um to burn address it actually doesn't disappear it just sits there forever there why it's a burn address uh zero x many zeros after because there is no way to transfer asset out of that address but it's ultimately there on chain you can look it up you sometimes you can see the assets if people stored those on ipfs or in you know better systems you can still see the image you know and that that image was sent to the burn address and when so i like to sometimes like dig in for treasures like that and be like okay here they are oh wow they've been burned when oh wow i have to save those I mean, just to, ha- I don't know, weird hobby of mine. So that artwork of mine contains several, not several, maybe like 20, 30 burned NFTs that I found and those I burned myself. Yeah, so they're all real NFTs. So if you, you can really find them uh, if you dig in. And <laughs> that's a lot of work, but they're all really real burned NFTs that are indeed sitting there at the null address or, you know, all together indefinitely, you know, collecting digital dust, so to say, so to speak. It's a very interesting concept that like ultimate place of abandonment, but that forever reminder of, um, you know, artists, uh, I don't know. You, you really can't hide what you're not proud of. It's, it's gonna be there forever, but they're beautiful. And they're like, I don't know, they're just beautiful. The concept is just really, really beautiful. Speaking as a collector, so, so something I've noticed, there is a school of thought out there, especially amongst sort of OG internet artists, you know, people who are on, you know, this, this sort of Tumblr and, and all sorts of things uh, earlier, that mm-hmm. because they didn't get into NFTs, you know, right in the sort of the beginning, you know, the 2018, 2019s, and they came in a bit later, that their sort of OG credentials are not basically as valued as people who may have started later but were earlier into NFTs. Interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, how early someone got into NFTs, how does that sort of position themselves in the NFT space? I don't feel like every artist now has to be jumping in and be like minting NFTs. If you're a painter or a sculptor, you're doing great and you kind and you express yourself in the realms of your medium and you 
you work sell at it, why do you need to jump and like start meaning NFTs um, in this chaotic fashion like a lot of artists do? You know, it's just not necessary. You can be successful like being just you, not jumping on any hype trains, right? I think that what makes it authentic to me. And yes, of course, there are a lot of OG Tumblr artists that recognize the potential immediately. I wasn't a Tumblr artist. I never even used Tumblr. I was a bit the different generation. And I feel like a lot of early OG artists were Tumblr artists in the beginning. And, you know, from the Tumblr era, there were their own stars. Everybody knows. And and some others who are represented by galleries right now that are professional artists. And I feel like there were people who were talented or doing great, but somehow they missed the train. You know, they weren't picked up by the galleries and they sort of kind of, yeah, all fizzled out for them when they saw and heard about nfts uh, but super rare they'd be like this is my time this is finally my time and they kind of like yeah now i'm not gonna miss it now i'm gonna be the star of this era 10 years later i think that was the case of i don't know the stories uh, of rex bobby but i like to like imagine stories about people's narrative like for myself maybe i'm totally wrong but i'm weird like that um yeah i guess that's uh Excopy, um, Sarah Zucker, um, I don't know about Matt Kane. I don't think he's a Tumblr artist, but yeah, and a lot of others, yeah, they were early to NFT space because they had that experience and they knew that those online communities can actually be sort of a launch pad for their careers going forward. Yes, and other Tumblr artists who missed out on that and now be like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're right that they're kind of late in a sense to that um, community, right? They will never be considered OGs in a sense. And yeah, I mean, one thing to be an OG, to be early, and another thing to be a professional artist, to be creating um, for a decade consistently, sort of like evolving. That's another thing. So like you guys are collectors, art historians, tell me like, how do you sort of like, value does artists have to create consistently over a period of like decade and whatever or you can just be early and kind of disappear right that i feel like it's sort of uh, the combination of both i feel like a lot of this actually comes down to a battle of language right because uh right. i feel like for example the the term crypto art it's not used as much anymore right <laughs> sort of nft art has kind of supplanted that and then certain people want to use the term digital art Right. And I feel like each one of these things are kind of different things. And based on what the actual term becomes historically will actually benefit certain people to the detriment of other people, because they all mean kind of different things. So, for example, if what we're doing right now is digital art or Internet art or whatever it is, you know, when you first got started minting NFTs becomes less important. Right. But if what we're doing right now is sort of nft art Mm -hmm. then when you start minting becomes very important (laughs) Right, Uh, right. and you know a a lot of this is a a battle over language basically i think it's a battle of the narratives right i mean what's your opinion i mean everything is an opinion and there's no universal truth right same in the art history right there's no like objective universal truth that's been depicted to the dot 
You know, there are so many nuances in this terminology as well, right? Art history, who is it written by? After all, like we have to look back, I mean, by a handful of individuals, like always, right? It's not necessarily meant to be objective, maybe accurate to a degree, as much as it can be. But again, it leaves room to an error. But anyways, like, what, what do you guys think? Like, what are your, um, I'm kind of like that, that buff who's been thinking a lot about difference between crypto art, NFT art, and what else, digital art. Like, for me, those are very different terms. I mean, I'd like to like, know your perspective on that. This is such an interesting topic. I feel like we need to start talking about it, right? It's, it's a good time to kind uh, of sift through um, the noise. I mean, I'll offer up the latest term, which is NFT art, which I think is the dominant term as of today. And I think a lot of that came about because of uh, art blocks, generative art, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, because before, before art blocks, crypto art was the kind of the dominant term because what it was was artists who were doing their, their thing and minting it onto the blockchain. But art blocks kind of made popular the, the generative art category, which was... Uh, essentially coders who coded smart contracts, which generated art in and of itself, right? And so you couldn't really call that right. crypto art. It was in essence, NFT art in the in a purer sense of the word because it was the mm-hmm. ERC-721 contract and it was just sort of generating the art. And so I think that led to, you know, the rise of this term NFT art and then, and then everything became NFT art. But when everything becomes NFT art, the whole OG, like when did you get into NFT art becomes very important. Right. you're right it's incredibly messy it, it is right it's like what is it even like where do you find nft art and i think it's a larger umbrella term for nfts that could be art i mean people some people believe pfp projects is art i mean generative art is whole other category really and yeah it's a trend in the space I have my own issues with generative art and I still haven't resolved that in my head. So um, I always believe that art is all about meaning, but generative art is kind of rejects that in a sense. So I don't know, maybe that's what the future holds. I, will, yeah, I don't know. I, I have my big issues with generative art, you know, big issues as an artist. Right, can, can you say a bit more about that? Because that's interesting. I, I think I get what you're trying to say. Like you're saying that generative art, because of the mechanism, the automatism that by which it operates, right. it somehow there's a long history of artists, contemporary artists that go back to Duchamp that actually played with randomness with a kind of like chance as a mechanism with, well, chance and randomness is one thing, but like more mathematical or like automatic processes. Again, now I have the same problem with you with name dropping. But people, I mean, even like Hans Arp, for example, or or Carl Andre, they 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 had a system of ordering, you know, their in Carl Andre's, for example, it, it was like a floor sculpture, it's like modular. There's some kind of structure that wasn't attributed to author. Like it's it's not something that's like the artist had an intention, but there was some of that was delegated to chance to to other operations. So th- there's that, right? As as we all know, right? So, no, of course. Like I, I mean, chance happens in everybody's art practice and mine as well, of course. And it's beautiful in their own way. But but somehow you see that generative art is is a little bit distinct from. Yeah, I I just wanted. About I thought, intent. Yeah. I mean, it's all about the intent. I mean, Duchamp himself was a deeply conceptual artist, and 
had like deep reasoning for his practice, you know, and that's just one of the experiments of many he did. I think ultimately it's a realm of a conceptual art and there was a lot of thought behind it, right? And it's the kind of intentionality. I think with generative art, I think it is ultimately the future of automation of um, creating that perfect imagery generated by the computer. It's sort of like AI, that's the art artificial intelligence would be creating if it could, right? If it's programmed to create art, that's probably that it would be making. But I feel like art for me, it's about imperfect. It's about human. It's about what makes us human, right? It's not about perfection automation. It's about, I don't know, it's just, it's about soul sort of. And that automation software creating art for you is like my, uh, my question is like, why the hell like you even need it? Why the artists are even like there? What's of yourself are you putting in there? And what is your intent? What are you trying to express? What are the ideas? Are you trying to express in what what narrative, what larger um, societal issues? Like I, I can never say that word. Social <laughs> issues are you exploring in your practice? You know, right. those are the questions a lot of generative artists um, fail to answer. Mm. You know, and the generative art movement fails to answer. You know, and that's why for me it's I don't know. It feels a bit. I don't know, gimmicky in a sense. Do you think it's, it's for you, do you think it's because uh, some of the humanist or human like, anthropocentric, I guess, um, nature of that art has been lost with generative? Um, or, or well, yeah, it- something like, yeah, I think art is the last form that kind of, you know, like very human in nature, you know? It's like innately human creativity is, Creation is innately human and imperfection and emotions and that raw expression as well. It's like innately what makes us human. I mean, mm-hmm. I believe I'm a believer in singularity that, that machines will take over eventually. I'm a big buff when it comes to futurism and all those theories. So I believe that generative art will have a moment in the future anyways. That's the art of the machines. But we don't need to sort of rush that world you know i actually just thought of a good example well i think so actually but um i want to hear what you think so on kawara right very famous conceptual artist active in new york in the 60s and maybe his most famous series was the date paintings where you know for those of you who are not familiar he basically wrote well he painted actually he kind of like uh painted the date for example, like May 17th, 1962 or something. All right, uh, yeah, yeah. You no, know, just like in white letters on different colored backgrounds. But basically he was just writing out the date and he made an entire painting. And if he didn't finish it in that day, he would destroy it, right? Mm-hmm. Like that to me, it is profoundly human. Obviously he, it's, it's a trace of his existence, right? Like he lived through that day and he made a handmade painting. At the same time, it's kind of like a clock. It's just a, like he generated the date and he could have printed it. He could have photocopied it. He could have typewritten it, but he, he obviously he painted it. So 
I like that. That just popped into my mind because like that gesture is very human, as you say, Olive. Like it's it's one of the few things that the handmade is still one of the things that's still very like you know a machine could do it, but there's something more human about it. Let me let me offer a, a counterpoint. <laughs> um, I, I kind of think the sort of genre of art is is actually very human, but the but but that the way it's done is kind of completely revolutionary in I guess the history of art. So if you if you think back to so the lineage of of how art began, right? It's it, we're talking about sort of cavemen taking a stick, dipping it in some colored mud, drawing on a rock, right? And, right? and basically that has kind of been how art has always been done, right? Like today we might have an iPad and we might have like Procreate and, but, but we're still doing the same things, right? We're using some sort of instrument to essentially draw, you know, what, what we want to draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what, what we have now with generative art is kind of like the cavemen picking up a stick and <laughs> dipping it in mud, right? So, so right. what we have is we have coders and all of them, especially if you look on, on the earlier art blocks, they're basically all using one library, right? P5JS. And, and this library basically allows you to draw essentially shapes, right? Triangles, squares, circles, that's basically it. And, and out of these sort of primordial elements, the coder or the creative coder has to create the emergent art that that is kind of emerging and and i think a lot of the stuff that's emerging obviously won't age very well just like you know cave paintings won't age very well over time but but i think you know just like you know we've always thought that you know some person holding some kind of stick like object and drawing is kind of the the way art is done i think in the future you know a lot of people will think well some guy coding (laughs) Um, and thinking about you know how to write code is the way art will be done or at least a type of art and I think what will emerge out of that will be sort of much more complex emergent than what we have now we we literally right. have cave people drawing on caves right now is uh, is, yeah. is what the generator of art is, is now yeah. my silent question here is like what's the meaning I mean not many artists like even elaborate like what's the meaning I'm not seeing the meaning and it's not being elaborated by the artist. Like they don't even know themselves what's the meaning and why, you know, those questions haven't been answered. That's another problem of mine. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a bunch of artists where there is the meaning. The meaning is that this is hot. This is a good way to make money and <laughs> let's put something yeah. out that looks good. And, and let's, <laughs> but, that looks good. That means like it's uh, highly decorative and like, you know what art right, world right. But, art but here, yeah but but here's the thing right like okay let's i mean kids will probably kill me but i have a feeling that if you go back to you know the the early renaissance a lot of the the artists we call masters now we're just doing it for paycheck because the church was the only thing that paid at the time and they just had to draw scenes out of the bible to basically get a paycheck that that's too confusing the motivation (laughs) and content so like they sure they had patrons and they were basically on the payroll of their you know their renaissance master their italian prince whatever it is Right. right but that doesn't I, I don't think that actually detracts necessarily detracts from the content of the work. And obviously religious life was very central to, to exist, you know, like the artists and his role uh, back then. 
you know, the role of art was to glorify the church and its uh, domain. So that was considered like the only one of the only appropriate subject matters. You know, there, there was no abstraction because, you know, everything was figurative and, and, you know, the artists may not even have been aware that there could be non-figurative art. So I, I don't think we should really blame the artists. No, no, no. But, yeah, but the thing I is, think that, that depicted their lives. But were, were yeah. the artists asked, what is the meaning of your thing? And if they were nobody asked, asked that. and nobody asked, and yeah. and I'm speculating that if someone asked them that at the time, they would be like, "Well, the, the Catholic Church commissioned me to paint this, so I paint it." Like that would be what they would say, right? So I'm thinking like a lot of the a lot of the meaning that is infused in what was drawn back then or painted back then came afterwards, right? And and it might even be subconscious. I'm not saying like they didn't have you know, a particular author, but it might've been subconscious. And I'm thinking the same thing could happen here. Like it definitely could be that some guy just did something now just to make money. That's not a bad thing. I mean, a lot of people do things. Like, and that's not to say that there's not genius or creativity in that, right? Just because someone did something for the money doesn't mean that it's devoid of sort of artistic meaning. I think part of what you're driving at uh, maybe is that the context like you do first and ask for forgiveness later in a sense right so you have all these artists that just work in the mode that they're accustomed to whether it's the renaissance or you know 19th century impressionist painting or whatever they wanted to you know work in that mode and then the art historians and the academics came in later and contextualized it mm-hmm. olive i i heard a, a former guest uh, or a guest of the of the show kenny schachter I've heard that you're the person that introduced him to NFTs. Can yes. You, can you can you tell the story for our uh, for our listeners? Kenny Schachter was my social media friend for quite a while. You know, you have those social media friends that you kind of accumulate throughout life um, and art life. And I think one day um, we went to some gallery tour in Chelsea when it opened up. And I was telling him about my drop on Nifty Gateway. Um, that oh, I just like drop um, my artwork, um, high birds and pieces of something, and like I exp- explained him the concept, and he was like, "So okay, cool, but like, so what am I getting?" I'm like, "What do you mean, what you're getting? You're getting that piece of like art, yeah, like art, like NFT." And he's like, "Like what? What does that mean? I'm getting NFT, like." I cannot hang it on my wall. It doesn't sound like it. So it means like I'm not getting something not real. I don't like that. Sounds like a scam. You know, it's just a bit gimmicky to me. But then I explained, you know, NFT is like this digital item that's on a blockchain. And he's like, um, he's like, okay, maybe interesting. And he was making digital art for a very long, long time. And he was like, okay, maybe I'll try and you know it took him a while to yeah to think about it and later on when he did his own drop on nifty gateway he was convinced he's like okay that makes sense like okay i can i can see that and then he became very passionate about the space and this new art medium slash technology and whatever that is yeah, so I was the first person who told him about NFTs and encouraged him to the drop. And he was like the, the right, exactly that person to really spread the message about NFTs. And I, I think his enthusiasm is really, really contagious. 
And a lot of people in the art world trust his judgment. So I think like Kenny Schachter was the person who introduced the art world to the NFTs. I, yeah. I believe that. Thing. Yeah, and and you're the person who introduced Kenny Schachter. So you're you yep. you're, you're basically responsible for the for the spread of the NFTs of the trade art world, essentially. You get you get double clout for that. <laughs> <Okay. album. laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I do whatever uh, whatever I can. That's that's all you can do to influence the history, right? Just do the best you can. We're gonna wrap up with the customary question. So, who is your favorite artist? Oh my god, um, I'm all over the place. I like Richard Prince, um, Tracy Ammon, Joyce Pensada, even Gerhard Ger- Richter. There's so many. There's so many good ones. I I yeah, I haven't even named Edward Munk. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, Claude Monet, like, actually, he was the first guy who made an abstract painting, all right? Funny enough, not, not many people know. Um, oh, my God, there are so many amazing artists that I'm forever inspired by. Edvard Munch is definitely a very human artist. It's, it's pure yeah. existential <laughs> angst, right? So I, I can see where you're coming from. I understand your, your own anguish about anguish (laughs) Uh, no and i also like richard prince he's very intellectual right right okay right that's like both parts of me is like i'm insanely intellectual and analytical a lot of times Mm. but i also like you know in the in the constant search of meaning and i think it's the most human there can be like search for meaning you know it's like yeah we as humans always try to like find it and find that immortality in the meaning in that twisted circle olive thank you very much for coming to the show it was a great discussion it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure you guys are so amazing i feel like we can talk for hours like about (laughs) everything (laughs) that's why we do the show Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor Is Rising.